like singing activates a different part of the brain than speech does. And I just thought that was, that was incredible. So I think an orchestra of the future will, will serve their community in ways that are quite different than just coming to the concert hall, hearing a performance of Beethoven and going home. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Blurry Media, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from each other, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm great. Nice to see you, Lance. Nice to see you too. It's been a minute since I saw you last time because the last time I was at uh, the TSO for the very first time, actually, and it was so wonderful meeting you um, and seeing the show and it was such a beautiful experience and also an incredibly stunning venue. So I am so happy that we can reconnect in the new year. As am I, as am I. (laughs) So um, today I want to talk about Obviously, your role within the TSO, uh, Toronto Symphony Orchestra, as well as your career journey, and really talk about what it means to open access to and open doors to the symphony orchestra, whether that is from the perspective of an attendee or uh, a performer, and what the orchestra of the future looks like. I think it'll be a walk in the park. Small topics. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off with, you know, if you, I'm curious, if you stop someone on the street here in Toronto, what do you think is the first thing uh, they would say about their overall impression of the symphony orchestra, whether or not they've been like, what do you think is the general consensus around or impression that people have of the orchestra as an art form and as a, you know, a place to go? I would say that, most people when asked about the Toronto Symphony Orchestra would probably react to their perception of the art form more than the institution, because I think that the art form itself has created um, a kind of distance with the population. And so it, it, it creates a barrier for people to even engage with the institution. All of that said, um, over over many years, and certainly uh, I, I'll speak mostly about my tenure here, which has been about two years, we've been really working on bringing the orchestra's presence more into the center of everyday life. So creating opportunities for people from all different kinds of backgrounds, from all different geographic areas of the greater Toronto area to engage with the Toronto Symphony. I'll give you an example. Uh, for the past two years, we've started our season in the same week that we do our, you know, our big opening night concerts uh, with a free open house and community concert. And so the hall is open for four hours. There are musicians and artisans from all over our community, from a wide 
um, variety of, of cultural backgrounds. Our musicians are there. Um, it's great for families. People have an opportunity to uh, to write music themselves, learn how to play instruments, hear amazing performances. And then we have a free concert in the hall. And that concert is really programmed to um, kind of do two things, right? One, to reflect the community and two, to give a it's kind of a taste of what we do in our various series throughout the season. Of course, ultimately those are one and the same, right? We try that those are always try for those to always be one and the same. And what I like about that is um, it's not just providing a, a great afternoon out for people or for their families, but it's creating um, familiarity, creating belonging for people that they know that Roy Thompson Hall and the Toronto Symphony Orchestra belong to them. So we're, we're working to change that perception, I guess, is the, is the short way of saying what I've just said. Yeah, yeah. I guess that kind of leads into what my next question was about is like, are there any misconceptions about the orchestra that you hope to dispel through your work? I think there's so many misconceptions. Um, there are misconceptions about who orchestral music is for, uh, who it's written by, who plays it who programs and produces it. And, um, you know, one of the things that has been so interesting about my career is, um, you know, I'm a six foot one, 200 pound black man, uh, but I'm also the CEO of a, of a major orchestra. And sometimes when I walk in a room, I kind of, I can sort of see the, the brain cells working that, oh, wait, wait, you, wait, you represent this orchestra. I sometimes think that my very presence challenges the idea that classical music or orchestral music is not for you mm -hmm. because it's for me. I do this um, certainly not because I love the stress. I do it because <laughs> I love this music and this music, making music, making music with others. It changed my life. Like I've seen the world. I have done things that I could never have done if it weren't for that French horn that I had back in, in my hands when I was a teenager. And so I am so incredibly passionate about it. And I, I love sharing that. And I love being um, not only an advocate, but a symbol of the fact that classical music isn't, isn't just for those people. It's actually also for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting um, discussion that I want to also kind of explore a little bit later in this, in this interview, but what made you, you know, going back to your, you know, French horn days, I also read that you used to play clarinet, which is something <laughs> that you and I have in common because <laughs> I also did that, but it was not my destiny. And I quickly found out that um, <laughs> I needed to move on from that. So, but what, you know, made you fall in love with music and also the business of music? Because you're on that side of the, of, you know, the, the table as well thought about this a lot over the years and I frequently thought that what made me fall in love with music was music and it wasn't that it was I think playing music was the first time where I felt like I belonged somewhere where I felt like I had a community of people um you know, this incredible thing happens when you're playing music. Um, you know, we know from the science that all of these different areas of your brain are activated. You know, you know, rhythm is like mathematics. Um, you know, parts of your, uh, your, 
your brain that process language light up future planning all of these things right but there's something emotional that happens when you look up and you look into the eyes of someone when you're making music together it's incredibly intimate and intense and you don't actually communicate with people um, in that same way doing anything else and so what made me fall in love with music was actually yeah that it was community and belonging Mm -hmm. and um and then i think secondary to that was the ability to express what i couldn't yet say like i like i i was i started doing this when i was you know seriously when i was a teenager i was 13 or 14 years old and um i didn't have the emotional maturity to say some of the things that i needed to say but i could do it through my horn yeah and so then then sort of transitioning out of that and going into the music business um what i loved about it is that uh, you know i i'm i was never destined to be a performer um you know you you have to have such an incredible drive you have to know so deep down that that is the only thing that you can do and i was never that person i knew that there were other things i could do though i loved music but what I feel when I'm when I'm working at the very best and highest level in the music business is I there's no other talent or skill that I have that could make a greater impact on the world or that could bring more joy and meaning to more people. And so when you sit in the hall and you think, okay, I did even something little to make this concert happen and look at what's happening in this hall. And I've got some little sliver of responsibility for that. That is like flying high. That is the greatest feeling in the world. Yeah, yeah, truly. Um, and so music, you know, like so many art forms, whether it's fashion or theater, um, can often serve as really a barometer of the times. It's a medium that really encapsulates our values, our desires, our fears in a given moment. In what ways do you think the symphony orchestra acts as a reflection of its time, especially when so much of the programming and material is, uh, you know, a product of eras past as well? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, I think it's important to start with, you know, I don't believe that a symphony orchestra is a museum piece. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's not a museum. You know, we might be playing music that was written 400 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, but the way that we as an audience and, and frankly, the way that they as musicians um, see that it's always through a contemporary lens. The reason Beethoven three, his Eroica symphony, which he wrote and was going to dedicate to Napoleon and then Napoleon crowned himself emperor and he crossed it out and instead he dedicated it to Eroica, a hero. The reason that that piece matters today is not just because of the notes and it's not just because it's pretty. It matters because we're still struggling with that. We're still struggling with people who abuse their power, <laughs> with people who believe that they are above the law, they are above humanity, that they are above the people that they're meant to lead. So, so on one end, it's, it's, it's that these pieces that have come down to us through the years 
survive because they still have relevance, because they speak to the human condition, and because we can see ourselves in them if they're, you know, if they're well presented. The other yeah. part of why we're not a museum piece is that um, we commission so much new music. Um, you know, we play in any given year 20, 25 pieces which have never been played before. And those could be from international artists from all over, or they could be from Canadians, or we even have a series for people who, who actually live here in Toronto, young composers who live here in Toronto uh, that, we, that we play. And so um, it's always a dialogue between um, modern, modern issues, modern sensibility, and what antiquity has to tell us, uh, and, um, and how how the, the the actual problems of today are rendered through music that's being created right before us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while I was preparing for this interview, I read through some of your program book messages from 2023 and 2024. And I noticed that such a big theme in your communication focused on opening doors, literally and figuratively. And, you know, that was opening doors to the community, to people that have historically not had a chance to take up space in the halls of the symphony orchestra. Um, but talking about opening doors would imply that they've been closed at some point. So mm -hmm. in the orchestral world, which barriers have historically blocked access to the art form, whether as a participant or as a consumer of the art? And that's a, you know, a bit of a loaded question. There's a lot to unpack there, but just, you know, from like a, a top level standpoint, what do you think have been some of those factors? Gosh, there, there, there's so many, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they're not all unique to orchestral music or to the Toronto symphony orchestra, but, uh, certainly, but you know, it's, um, it's education, um, it's cost, it's location, it's transportation. Um, it's that very important piece of belonging, right? I know about it. I can afford to go. I know where it is, but when I get there, will there be people who look like me? Will I feel welcome? Will I be ostracized? You know, all of those things. Um, and you know, those are, those have been very real barriers in our, in our industry. And I, I it probably sounds really uh, pessimistic to speak about it in this way, but I don't, think that we will ever overcome those barriers if we don't look them in the face, admit uh, where as an industry we could be better and start dismantling that. Yeah. I mean, I also think that um, we, you know, we all, we all need to see ourselves. And I, I think that kind of goes back to that very first statement I made about in a way being a symbol. I'm always amazed that when I uh, engage with young people, in this role, you know, you see that sort of light bulb go off. I mean, it happened for me. I was um, living in, I, I'm American and I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I remember getting this CD of opera's greatest moments, you know, from like the BMG CD club. Yeah, I fell for it, right? <laughs> so I, I'd, I'd sort of gotten curious about classical music and I was sort of dipping my toe in. I got this opera's greatest moments and there was a track that I really loved from a Wagner opera called Lohengrin. Not exactly the thing that a, a novice would, uh, would, would usually uh, gravitate toward. Anyway, I was just obsessed with this track and I remember opening the book and looking at the person who was singing it and it was Jesse Norman. I didn't know what a Jesse Norman was. 
<laughs> but I saw the face of this beautiful black woman staring back at me. And it dawned on me that, wait, well, if she could do it, like if she could be in this industry, maybe I could. Now, I'm not an opera singer and I'm certainly not the great Jesse Norman, but that was a little door that was opened for me. So so the I would say the last piece of that is just representation and being um, being seen and being seen in the programming, right? Seeing that that music by, artists by, all of those things, people who look like me, people who come from where I come from or are similar to me are making an impact in that industry. I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so <clears throat> I was reading that you are the first Black person to run a major North American orchestra. And in so many ways, that is such an incredible achievement. And in other ways, one can't help but ask why it's taken so long for such a milestone to be passed as well. Did you realize the weight and significance of your appointment when you accepted the position of CEO at the Toronto Symphony Orchestra? You never realize the weight. I mean, you know it intellectually, but you don't know it emotionally, right? Mm -hmm. um, so intellectually, yes, I, I sort of figured out, well, wait a minute. You know, there are, at this level, there's never been a Black person running an orchestra. And gosh, might I be the first. And so, yeah, in intellectually, I knew the emotional piece hit later. And it wasn't pretty. You mm -hmm. know, it feels, it makes me deeply, deeply sad because I'm not the first person who's wanted it. I'm not the first person who's qualified for it. I'm not the first person who could have really done a great job and made a difference, but somehow uh, I'm the person in seat and I don't know why, but sometimes that's the way life is. Right. And um, we don't know why we have particular challenges, but we just know that we have to keep going. And so, you know, on a daily basis, I don't really think about it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm working on finances and marketing and programming and all those other things. But um, yeah, sometimes I do sit back and wonder, yeah, why me? Yeah, bigger picture kind of perspective around that conversation. Um, yeah, and, and but it also it also dictates it also dictates the work because yeah. I may be the first, but I can't be the last. And I have a real responsibility to, you know, sort of drop that ladder behind me. And so in that way, it kind of, you know, it, it, it focuses, it, it really focuses on my values. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. So what advice do you have for, you know, other people of color or minority communities when it comes to taking up space, making your presence known, you know, trying to get a seat at the table or just building your own table as well. You know, it's so funny. I, I, I oddly feel not very qualified to answer that question <laughs> um, because, you know, I, for the most part, I've attacked my career by just doing really good work, but I know that that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, like, the representation of color uh, of people of color in so many fields is low, uh, not because they're not doing good work and they're not working hard, right? They're like they're systemic issues. Um, you know, one of the things that I would say is 
we really all need to focus on helping each other. And that's not just people of color helping each other, but it's, it's all stacking hands on the fact that our industries will be better when they're diverse. Yeah. Right. That, that diversity is excellence. Like they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're linked, right. <laughs> like diversity, you know, you will be more excellent if you are more diverse, if you have those diversity of skills, perspectives and whatnot. And I think back on my career and I think back on the number of people who helped me, I mean, all along the way, I had people who saw talent, who saw determination, desire, and they helped. Even when I didn't think I needed it, sometimes when I didn't want it. <laughs> and so I suppose the way that I, that I try to give back is I, as I also try to help. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess building on that, you know, what's a moment in your career where you felt like you had really given someone visibility and made them feel seen, um, or a community? You know, that it, in a sense, it happens so often because before I was, uh, before I was a chief executive, I was a programmer. And so every day I was making decisions about who's on that stage and what are they playing? And, um, every single, like, so in a sense, every day you felt like you were making, uh, decisions that would help make people visible and make their stories visible. And that was, that was one of the exciting parts about the job. Yeah. I was reading, um, through, you know, your letters and stuff and you had mentioned a few times about opening up access to, uh, which I thought was really interesting, opening up access to neurodivergent people, mm -hmm. uh, the neurodivergent community, uh, which I thought was so interesting because there is, um, there were, it's, you know, there's, there's a scientific kind of, um, uh, conversation that you can have there too, in terms of how music impacts, uh, the neurodivergent community as well. But can you maybe just talk a little bit about what that programming was and, and I guess why it, it it's so important? Absolutely. So we have a, a program uh, of concerts that we call relaxed concerts. And so uh, they started off as uh, relaxed versions of our uh, young people's concerts. So these are surprise, surprise concerts uh, designed for young people and their families. And last year, and we've continued, we've expanded those, that series of concerts into uh, concerts that are more geared towards adults, but nevertheless, you know, so so they are um, a version of our, you know, standard, straightforward classical concerts, which, which we call Masterworks here, um, that are also uh, geared toward uh, members of the neurodiverse community. If you think about orchestral music, classical music of any kind, it's like, it's a painting that is done usually on a canvas of silence. And that silence is an important part of what we do, but it's also in a sense, a barrier to certain people. And so what happens if you really want to hear a concert, but you cannot be silent, right? Or you need to move, which creates noise. Like, therefore, you know, there's, a, there's an environment where you're not welcome. Or, or where you can't access the product. So essentially, with our relaxed concerts, 
Um, they begin with the conductor, and last year it was our, our music director, and he's doing another one this year, walking out on stage, and he says, okay, this is a relaxed performance, and whatever you need to do to enjoy this experience, to um, be able to engage with what we're, what we're offering you today, please do. So if you need to get up and leave, you can do that at any time. The doors, you know, the doors are not locked. You can, well, they never are locked, but you know, it's just to say you can leave. Uh, we have a quiet room. If it becomes too much for you, we have um, earplugs and noise dampening headsets. We have fidget spinners. If you need to vocalize, vocalize. But the point is that whatever it is you need to do to enjoy this experience, you can do it. You're safe here and you're welcome here. And these performances are absolutely extraordinary. Um, what I noticed as I walked around the hall and I talked to people, the story that I heard over and over was, this is something that has previously not been available to our family. Or if you are a caregiver and there's no one else to care for your loved one, if you like music, you can't go. So suddenly we've created this opportunity where whole families can come and experience the orchestra together. And uh, I found it incredibly moving and really just a, a reminder of, of why we're here. And I went backstage, you know, and when you're playing music, right, it is very, um, you have to stay very concentrated to do this job. So I went backstage and I was talking to some members of the orchestra, just kind of doing an informal poll, like, what was that like for you? It's the music director. It was Beethoven five. It's not an easy piece. Like, you know, there is noise in the hall and whatnot. And to a person I heard, you know, it's worth it. We work harder. And I said, why? And I said, because this audience deserves the very best of what we do. That's, yeah, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. It's so incredibly exciting. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to, you know, our conversation around like the bigger picture of the work that's done through the orchestra. And I guess like the impact that the orchestra also has outside of the concert hall too. Right, right. So TSO recently celebrated its centennial last year uh, and embarks and, and embarks on, as you've noticed, uh, or have you, as you have noted, quote, the beginning of the beginning. What gives you hope as the orchestra enters its next hundred years? What gives me hope, frankly, is that this is an organization uh, it located in a city, neither of whom, neither of which rather, have become what they're going to be. It's so interesting for me living in a city that is still very much trying, it's young, it's still trying to figure out, you know, who it is, what it wants to be, what it really cares about. And that's, that, that's in, compared to the places where I've lived before, that's incredibly exciting. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this orchestra is very much, is very much the same. You know, it's an orchestra that is 101 years old now and has a rich and long and deep history. And yet it's an organization that I think holds that history so lightly. And I think that's the, that's the very best combination because 
there's the kind of stability and gravitas that a century brings you, but there's the curiosity and the openness about what the, what the future brings. That's sort of why I think it's the beginning of the beginning. And an orchestra that would succeed in Toronto needs to be that way because the city is changing so rapidly. And if the goal of an orchestra is to be a tool, a, a servant of its population, you need a very flexible orchestra to, to be successful in this city. Yeah. And we have one. And that's why I'm just so thrilled about the next 100 years. And speaking of kind of, you know, flexibility and being able to adapt, you know, we live in a time, you know, really defined by fast consumption, immediate gratification, you know, infinite access to any kind of content and a lot of automation through technology, especially of uh, the creative fields. So with all that in mind, what do you think the orchestra of the future looks like? I think the orchestra of the future is um, an orchestra which expands who who it's for, right? An orchestra of the future is probably um, one that really thinks about a kind of programming that helps you touch a wide variety of communities. Like an orchestra of the future is probably an orchestra that is maybe listening more than it's speaking like like like, mm. like not um you know we're an orchestra this is what we do like it or, or lump it but more well how how can we serve you i mean you know when i think about for example our education programs and the number of it we serve forty thousand young people per year engage with the toronto symphony orchestra's education programs you know, some of them are through concerts, some of them are through workshops, some of them are in our youth orchestra making music and being, um, being you know, coached and trained by our musicians. But that's 40,000 kids. And th that comes, some of that comes about by listening and saying, well, what do you need? Okay, so music education in your community is not great. How can we help, right? You are finding um, social issues in your community. How can we help you? Um, your, you know, our, our program Sound Connections, it goes into, uh, we go into care homes and, and we work with seniors who have dementia, Alzheimer's with their, with their caregivers, right? And we've given something like 350 of these concerts to date. We're going in and saying, oh, these are seniors who are isolated and we're especially isolated during the pandemic when, when this program started. Okay, we can bring connection to you, right? We can we can bring some joy to you. And, you know, and, and, and it's not just, uh, it's not just that sort of um, surface joy. One of the, one of the concerts I talk about a lot, uh, the gentleman for whom we were playing sang throughout the entire performance. And afterward, his caregiver told us that um, he's nonverbal. He hadn't, she hadn't heard his voice in years, mm. but you see music, like singing activates a different part of the brain than speech does. And I just thought that was, that was incredible. So I think an orchestra of the future will, will serve their community in ways that are quite different than just coming to the concert hall, hearing a performance of Beethoven and going home. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, underscores how much of a role the orchestra and to a larger extent, the arts uh, have in bringing community together and 
and healing wounds and 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 bringing people together that may not have you know historically or, or typically had the opportunity to you know cross paths with each other as well absolutely you know when i think about the pandemic for example um there are two groups of people who kept us alive right it's mm -hmm. like well maybe it's three right the people who took care of our bodies, the healthcare workers, the people who made sure we had food and the artists. Yeah, definitely. We, we never would have survived without all three of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in many ways, you know, you yourself are also a conductor and a maestro, but of the many moving parts of an organization, how would you describe your leadership style? in the way that you like to, um, you know, rally a team and, you know, uh, cultivate the organization and its culture. It's interesting what I might say and what my team might say. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a poll but, after. But they're not here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I try to, um, I try to always remember that being a leader, being the CEO of a, of a company of this size does not mean that it's all on your shoulders. It's really easy to get into um, a version of I'll just do it myself mm. <laughs> and it does not work. So I really like to focus on, um, on listening as much as possible on, on, on trying to share the big picture so that my team knows what I value at least. And, you know, in an ideal world, those, those values link up with, with the values of the, of the organization. I try to do a lot of listening and really understanding the different perspectives. It's going back to that, um, you know, that diversity piece, right? Excellence is diversity, having the viewpoints, but if you don't listen, if they're not included and you don't care, then what's the point? Um, and, and, you know, I think that really helps me make decisions. I think about one particular member of my senior team, and this person is the exact opposite of me. <laughs> I mean, demographically, we're the exact opposite. Different gender, different age, different sexuality, different countries we come from, and also very different temperaments. So I have a little bit of a temper. And this person doesn't. And, you know, um, things will come up and I will react one way and they react in an exact opposite way. And it's such a great moderating uh, moderating force. So so in, in that way, it's, a, it's also a little bit about like when you have to go fast and when you have to go slow. And one of the things that I love about working with this person is um, they kind of hold me back a little bit and slow me down and help me uh, – make, you know, frankly, just make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. What's one thing that people would be surprised to learn about you? I'm incredibly silly, but no one ever <laughs> sees it. <laughs> I have like a, um, my sense of humor can be a little bizarre, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I, I, it rarely, it rarely comes out. And yeah. And that, and that for all of the sort of, you know, we, you know, you and I met at a fashion event. So for, you know, for all of the, you know, the clothes and the, 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 the 
fun and interesting things that I get to do. Um, real luxury, like real luxury for me would be sweatpants, roasting a chicken, and maybe baking a cake. <laughs> truly. At home. Truly. At home. That, is <laughs> that is luxury. I love that. I love that. Um, and what do you think is, you know, what, what have you learned about yourself as you've led the TSO that you, you know, maybe you weren't as aware of, uh, or, or kind of conscious of, uh, before going into the position? Oh my God, where would I even start? (laughs) You know, leadership is, is all about self-discovery. Because if you don't understand yourself, you don't understand others. I think I'd like to say, and I'm not fully fully there yet, I, I would like to say that what I've really learned in my time at the TSO is that I've learned how important compassion is and compassion starts at home. And if you are not compassionate and understanding with yourself, it's, it's impossible to turn that out into the world. And I'm a very driven person. Um, I have a, you know, background in performance, which is quite exacting. And, uh, I got pretty far in my career before realizing that I was, yeah, I'm kind of a nasty bully with myself Mm. and I don't, you know, I don't accept failure. I don't, um, I hold myself to an incredibly high standard and, Sometimes that seeps out into other people. Like, again, if you can't be compassionate with yourself, you can't be compassionate with others. And so I think I've, I think my time here, I've started to learn that maybe I need to, um, you know, be a little bit more gentle with myself and that will help me be more gentle with others. Yeah. Yeah. I, that is such a great piece of advice that I think literally anyone can, can use in their lives, you know, to varying degrees. So I think we don't think enough or talk enough about our critic, you know, that voice that we're hearing all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, what, what is that? What is that voice saying to you? (laughs) I have a pretty critical voice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So just as we kind of wind down here, we, our show, our podcast is called mission critical because we, we really focus and center ultimately the through line um, and the foundation of our conversations around mission and purpose. So what would you say is your mission? My mission is to bring meaningful experiences to people in my community, meaningful musical experiences to people in my community. Very simple. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Mark, I really enjoyed our chat together. It was so insightful and enlightening and also just a wonderful day, our wonderful kind of opportunity to, you know, hang out again uh, and hopefully many more to come soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me, Lance. Great conversation. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked, who you'd like to see on the show, and anything else you want to share. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?